Swittington of Pecatonica, Illinois, shares her work I'm writing for this just two days before well, my Mother's husband Day, Dick was in the Air Force during the Korean well, War. I found work I'm as a repair and installation with my son at Southwestern Bell Telephone Company nearby in San Antonio, Texas, I've just spoken with where my he sister, had been sent for basic training. Flowers Dick and I were newly married, and he worked in the administration building known as the Taj Mahal at Randolph Field. As the day approaches, I will be buying a crepe paper poppy to attach to my purse, handsome man. Day. And Dick fit the, the bill. We eventually returned home to Rockford, Illinois, where we had three daughters. We had been married for more than seventy mothers. years. I still could ask for more for one young woman. The memory of one man who celebrated Decoration Day, now Memorial Day, with his Appalachian family and other milestones. I will be reading those for you today, as well as what I learned on the history website about how the red paper poppy became a Memorial Day tradition. I'll begin with those pieces from New Breadwinner section. Getting a job outside the home gave women a chance to pitch in. Still in charge of households, their plates were full. This from Denise Theory, Alexandra, Kentucky. Mom was a stripper. At pennies an hour, a good attitude was a fringe benefit. Surely, my mom grew up in an agricultural area of Michigan. In the 1960s, our family was traveling to visit her parents when she pointed out the car window and said, Look, kids, that's where I used to strip. For one brief moment, I thought our ordinary family might be much more interesting than my adolescent imagination had ever dreamed. There were no pirates or bigamists or bank robbers in my family tree, nothing beyond a way-back ancestor whose father may have been a fly-by-night traveling salesman, but a stripper? At last, this was gossip worthy of sharing with my friends. Well... Almost all able-bodied young men were overseas defending our country during World War II. Farmers often hired young women as laborers to replace the workmen. In Michigan, local apple orchards had to be thinned of small apples in the process called stripping. That was it, and though the reality was a bit anticlimactic, it showed Mom's flair for telling a funny story. In addition to stripping apple trees, Mom spent a summer hoeing a neighbor's cornfields. It was hot, boring, back-breaking work, for which she and the other young laborers earned just a bit more than their age, twelve and a half cents per hour. Sometimes, when the farmer was not around, the children held amateur talent shows or put on impromptu plays in the fields. One day, Mom turned her hoe upside down and pretended it was a microphone. As she belted out somewhere over the rainbow in her best Judy Garland impersonation, she looked up to see her employer glaring at her in disapproval of this frivolous waste of his wages. Mom turned her hoe around and got back to work. Mom stayed home to raise us five kids, then went to work when we were all in school. She was a cashier at the local grocery store, referring to herself as the chubby checker. Mom always left an impression. Many years after she worked for the farmer, Mom's sister, a nurse, was caring for him. My aunt asked him if he remembered my mom. After a moment's thought, 
He remembered his twelve-and-a-half-cent wage earner and gruffly replied, Hump, I overpaid your sister. I gained a new respect for the teenage version of my mom, who was willing to hoe a crabby penny-pinching farmer's corn in the hot sun for meager wages and still felt like singing. Mom had a wonderful, sometimes risque sense of humor, and she didn't hold it back. I am grateful that she passed it on to us. This next offering is from Sonia Shork of Tucson, Arizona. Pioneering teacher, Grandma Edith blazed a trail for the women in her family. For 120 years, women in my family have worked full-time outside the home while still doing the housekeeping and parenting that needed to be done inside the home. We did it all and loved it. Grandma Edith Boyd graduated from a New York State teacher's training program in 1899. I still have her certificate. She taught third and fourth grades in the various schools in the Catskills for 35 years. Edith was married to a veterinarian who owned a livery stable. She fed not only her family, she had three daughters, but also the dozen male employees of the livery business. She drove her own horse and buggy to the schoolhouse in Corbett, a few miles away, building a fire on the days it was needed. Grandma never missed a day of work, and she retired in 1934 with a state pension. She came to live with us and continued to help my parents and take care of us kids. My mom, Marion Dalrymple, attended nurses' training at Carson Peck Memorial Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, where she earned her nursing degree in 1930. She worked at various hospitals. My dad was a New York State trooper and was frequently transferred. After dad was injured on the job, mom found work in a pharmacy. Later, during the war, she worked for the Army Air Corps. In 1960, mom began working at Manatee Memorial Hospital in Bradenton, Florida, and didn't retire fully until she was 75. I followed in grandma's footsteps and taught English, starting at Manatee High School in Bradenton in 1967. I married an American history teacher. My mother-in-law labeled me a women's libber. I simply thought working was the thing to do. After all, the tradition in my family was for the women to contribute income to the family kitty. We were proud to do it and grateful that we could. Nights Without Mom is the next story from Annette Cochera, Brookfield, Ohio. Accident forces family to make a major shift. Our house in Niles, Ohio was immaculate in the 1940s. Our mom, Mary, who was from Italy, was the embodiment of the stay-at-home wife and mother. She stretched every dollar by purchasing fabric and sewing our clothes and buying eggs and poultry at bargain prices while still serving wonderful meals. Through her careful management, she and our dad, Carmen, who was also born in Italy, were able to meet required costs for our simple lifestyle. But in 1948, Dad was involved in a car accident. He was uninsured and was found liable for causing damage to three other cars. Soon, my parents had insurmountable expenses— I had heard of people ending up in a poorhouse, and I thought our family was headed there. 
Packard Electric in Warren, Ohio, was a successful company that manufactured automotive parts. The mother of the family who lived next door worked there, and Mom confided our troubles to her. She arranged an interview for Mom, and to our surprise, Mom was hired to work on one of the auto parts lines. By the fall of 1948, our family had a new routine to accommodate Mom's second shift schedule. She got us ready for school and made supper so Dad could heat it up when he got home from his job at Stevens Metal Products in Niles. Brother Carmen was seven and I was nine. Sis Teresa, 12, was our supervisor and assisted us when we needed help. Our winter evenings, Sis popped corn for us and made Hershey hot cocoa, as Mom had done. In the summer evenings, Dad would make a fire outside and let us roast wieners and marshmallows. We would play until dusk when his shrill whistle called us home. We couldn't avoid some mishaps without Mom there to help us. I once burned a hole in a new nylon dress as I was ironing it, and another time I accidentally put a slit in a tablecloth while I was working on a science project. We also got away with things that Mom might have prevented. I found and opened the Christmas presents that were under her bed. She had hidden them, although I tried to rewrap them. It didn't work well. Once I ate an entire bunch of bananas, and another time practiced my cooking skills by frying sunny-side-up eggs. So much for Sis's supervision. By 1951, we were used to managing without Mom. We still missed her presence at school events and wished for her during emergencies, but our improvising had paid off. Mom handed over her paychecks, keeping only $20 for herself, until my parents were debt-free. After that, she kept all but $20 for herself. She modernized to fit in with her co-workers, painting her nails and perming her hair. Those nights without Mom required cooperation from every family member, but Mom gets the credit for the biggest transformation. Our secluded, demure mother showed great courage and an ability to adapt when she entered the workforce at middle age and emerged as the savior of our family. Terry Ward of Dallas, North Carolina, tells us about her mother's jobs that begin with A. Our mom, Dee Drummond Williams, was never without a job, or two, or three, in Norco, California, in the 1960s and 70s. Raising four kids while caring for numerous pets was already a full-time job, but mom liked the extra income as well as the social interaction. Our dad, Al, was away most of the time as a Transworld Airlines captain. First, Mom was an Avon lady, a job that had a side benefit for me. Penniless, I still wanted to give her a Mother's Day gift. What Mom wouldn't want the sample bottles of Avon products I found in her closet. I boxed and wrapped them and presented my thoughtful gift with a big smile. Mom also worked at Archway Cookies, where, as our cookie lady, she supplied us kids with all the yummy flavors we could ask for and more. Archway Cookies were the dessert in our lunch boxes, the refreshments at parties, and the treats we put in the neighbor's kids' Halloween bags. Her third job, Amway Distributor, wasn't as much fun. I didn't mind the chewable vitamin C tablets she supplied us with, but the cod liver oil was awful. 
From a young age, I was aware of mom's work ethic. It had a big influence on me. Melissa Dugan of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, tells us about her mother, head of the Bellboy Army. The St. Francis Hotel on Powell Street in San Francisco, California, was very fancy. When my mom, Mary Pat, worked there in the mid-1940s, it was customary to wash coins so they wouldn't soil women's gloves. My 20-year-old mom took the train from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to San Francisco and found a job as the hotel elevator operator. She was soon promoted and became the captain in charge of all of the bellboys at the hotel. The San Francisco Examiner even wrote an article about mom's promotion. The green-eyed brunette couldn't be pried away from her new job. Mom encountered famous people such as Mickey Rooney and Robert Stack. She once saw a body being transported on a gurney up, not down, the elevator, and wondered whether it was FDR trying to avoid being seen in his wheelchair. Mom loved to dance, and I like to imagine she tended the big band performances at the hotel's mural room. She ultimately went back to Iowa where she married a farmer and had a house full of kids. That became the next job she couldn't be pried away from. Grace Whittington of Pecatonica, Illinois, shares her work for Ma Bell. While my husband Dick was in the Air Force during the Korean War, I found work as a repair and installation clerk at Southwestern Bell Telephone Company in San Antonio, Texas, where he had been sent for basic training. Dick and I were newly married, and he worked in the administration building known as the Taj Mahal at Randolph Field. From my observation, the main office where he worked was supposed to be staffed with tall, handsome men, and Dick fit the bill. We eventually returned home to Rockford, Illinois, where we had three daughters. We had been married for more than 70 years. Who could ask for more? This from Mia Odessa Kubler of Clarence, New York, is about a different path. Once the idea took hold, she saw the road she was destined to take. In 1961, when President John F. Kennedy formed the Peace Corps, I was 17. The concepts on which the Corps were based drew my attention from the beginning. In the spring of 1965, my graduation from Marquette University imminent, nothing drew my interest more than the Peace Corps, to my parents' dismay. That August, I began training for Peace Corps groups going to Muir State, now Karnataka and Mahayashtra, in western-central India. Our training covered public health, including nutrition, latrine building, poultry raising, kitchen gardening, and many other healthy living skills. In addition, we studied the area's language and culture for several hours a day. Our teachers were from the states where we would be assigned. My experience working on a public health project at two villages could be frustrating because of the government bureaucracy and village problems were numerous and seemed overwhelming. But the rewards in personal relationships and insights on the world were rich and profoundly moving. As an American, a woman, and a person of faith, I am who I am today in great measure because of those two years living with the villagers in India who welcomed me into their lives. Our cook, 
the errand runner from the health center, the female leaders from the county level, and the doctor who had a practice in the village. So many kind people had an impact on my life. And of course, my fellow volunteers who put their hearts and souls into the skills of helping to change the serious health outcomes of villagers. I look back on almost 60 years ago and I wish that I had done more that I had more knowledge, energy, and time back then to effect true change. But I am grateful I chose to go on the adventure. We earned 11 cents an hour for two years, but we had an experience like no other. Without a doubt, the volunteers felt the greatest impact of the journey. India changed us more than we changed India. Things were changing for young men in America at that time, too. It was the time of the Vietnam War. Today, those who died in that war and all others will be remembered on Memorial Day, the last Monday in May, which began as Decoration Day. And here is Observing Decoration Day by Roger Guffey of Lexington, Kentucky. Yearly graveyard gatherings renewed family ties. Decoration Day, which falls at the end of May, was a revered social event of the Appalachian people, even more so than Christmas. Generations of relatives gathered in cemeteries to remember loved ones. I never knew Grandpa or Granny Guffey, Uncle Haywood or Uncle Charlie Lewis, but I learned about my ancestors as we converged on churchyards around Wayne County, Kentucky. I heard not only about the war heroes, but also about everyday people, and in many cases, how they met untimely ends. I was to regard the deceased with veneration, while I endeavored to add to our family legacy before I joined my ancestors in glory. My siblings and I crafted flowers from crepe paper and wire and planted them on ancestors' graves. We dressed in finery, sharing dinner on the ground under the oaks and hickories. I showed off my first clip-on tie at Decoration Day. The exodus of the mountain people for jobs in cities changed those rhythms, and now most communities no longer celebrate Decoration Day. I changed the flowers on my parents' graves to reflect the seasons, but I never see anyone else in the cemetery. Now that the day is on my mind, it's time to order crepe paper. And now Peggy Clemens Lordson, an accredited genealogist, takes us on a walk through history. Like Roger, my ancestors hail from Appalachia, and I recall crafting flowers from crepe and tissue paper to honor the dead on Decoration Day. A walk through a cemetery is a walk through the history of the area. My husband and I would reflect with our children as we looked at the names and dates on gravestones. Could this man have died in the Civil War? Five members of this family died within days of each other. What may have happened? Two women are buried beside this man, and a baby is buried with one of them. What could have caused this? Sites such as Find a Grave and Billion Graves make it easy to virtually visit ancestors' graves, but nothing is better than standing where the family last gathered to say goodbye. What began as Decoration Day, we now celebrate as Memorial Day. Memorial Day and its tradition have many ancient roots, While the first commemorative Memorial Day events weren't held in the United States until the late 19th century, the practice of honoring those who have fallen in battle dates back thousands of years. 
The ancient Greeks and Romans held annual days of remembrance for loved ones, including soldiers, each year, festooning their graves with flowers and holding public festivals and feasts in their honor. One of the first known public tributes to war dead was in 431 BC, when the Athenian general and statesman Pericles delivered a funeral oration praising the sacrifice and valor of those killed in the Peloponnesian War, a speech that some have compared in tone to Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. As the Civil War neared its end, thousands of Union soldiers held as prisoners were herded into a series of hastily assembled camps in Charleston, South Carolina. Conditions at one camp, a former racetrack near the city's citadel, were so bad that more than 250 prisoners died from disease or exposure. They were buried in a mass grave behind the track's grandstand. Three weeks after the Confederate surrender, an unusual procession entered the former camp. On May 1, 1865, more than 1,000 recently freed slaves, accompanied by regiments of the U.S. colored troops, including the Massachusetts 54th Infantry and a handful of white Christians, gathered in the camp to consecrate a new proper burial site for the Union dead. The group sang hymns, gave readings, and distributed flowers around the cemetery, which they dedicated to the martyrs of the race course. In May 1868, General John A. Logan, the commander-in-chief of the Union Veterans Group known as the Grand Army of the Republic, issued a decree that May 30th should become a nationwide day of commemoration for the more than 620,000 soldiers killed in the recently ended Civil War. On Decoration Day, as Logan dubbed it, Americans should lay flowers and decorate the graves of the war dead, whose bodies now lie in almost every city, village, and hamlet churchyard in the land. According to legend, Logan chose May 30th because it was a rare day that did not fall on the anniversary of a Civil War battle, though some historians believe the date was selected to ensure that flowers across the country would be in full bloom. Even before the war ended, women's groups across much of the South were gathering informally to decorate the graves of Confederate dead. In April 1886, the Ladies' Memorial Association of Columbus, Georgia, resolved to commemorate the fallen once a year. However, Southern commemorations were rarely held on one standard day, with observations differing by state and spread out across much of the spring and early summer. It is a tradition that continues today. Nine southern states officially recognize a Confederate Memorial Day, with events held on Confederate President Jefferson Davis's birthday, the day on which General Thomas Stonewall Jackson was killed, or to commemorate other symbolic events. Americans embraced the notion of Decoration Day immediately. That first year, more than 27 states held some sort of ceremony, with more than 5,000 people in attendance at a ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery. By 1890, every former state of the Union had adopted it as an official holiday. But for more than 50 years, the holiday was used to commemorate those killed just in the Civil War, not in any other American conflict. It wasn't until America's entry into World War I 
that the tradition was expanded to include those killed in all wars, and Memorial Day was not officially recognized nationwide until the 1970s, with America deeply embroiled in the Vietnam War. Although the term Memorial Day was used beginning in the 1880s, the holiday was officially known as Decoration Day for more than a century, when it was changed by federal law. Four years later, the Uniform Monday Holiday Act of 1968 finally went into effect, moving Memorial Day from its traditional observance on May 30th to a set day, the last Monday in May. For almost as long as there's been a holiday, there's been a rivalry about who celebrated it first. Bowlesburg, Pennsylvania and Carbondale, Illinois claim it. There are even two dueling Columbus challengers, one in Mississippi and the other in Georgia. Only one town, however, has received the official seal of approval from the U.S. government in 1966, 100 years after the town of Waterloo shuttered its businesses and took to the streets for the first of many continuous community-wide celebrations, President Lyndon Johnson signed legislation recently passed by the U.S. Congress declaring the tiny upstate village the official birthplace of Memorial Day. In the spring of 1915, bright red flowers began poking through the battle-ravaged land across northern France and Flanders or Belgium. Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, a Canadian who served as a brigade surgeon for the Allied artillery unit, spotted a cluster of poppies that spring, shortly after the Second Battle of Ypres. McRae tended to the wounded and got a first-hand look at the carnage of the clash, in which the Germans unleashed lethal chlorine gas for the first time in the war. Some 87,000 Allied soldiers were killed, wounded, or went missing in the battle. Struck by the sight of the bright red blooms on broken ground, McRae wrote a poem in Flanders Field, in which he channeled the voice of the fallen soldiers buried under those hardy poppies. Americans wear the symbolic red flower on Memorial Day, the last Monday in May, to commemorate the sacrifice of so many men and women who have given their lives fighting for their country. And this is In Flanders Fields by John McRae. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place, and in the sky the larks still bravely sing, fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Still we remember. Reading the section on new breadwinners takes me back to my school years. My mother returned to work as a kindergarten teacher when I was old enough to begin school. As I recall, she was the only mother in our neighborhood who had a full-time career. The child care availability did not exist as it does today, and since I was to be in kindergarten anyway, I spent the day in my mother's classroom, doing the work of the day in one class, usually the first morning class, the rest of the day enjoying the social aspect. Perhaps that contributed to my love of school from the very start and continued on beyond the spotlight year, 1969, that exciting first year at college and beyond. 
What are your memories of that time? I hope they are making you smile. Thanks for listening, and until next week, I'm Kathy Van Skoik.